Hello and welcome to Sermons from First Press, a weekly podcast from the First Presbyterian Church of Ann Arbor, Michigan. Our first reading today comes from the Gospel according to Matthew, in the fifth chapter, verses 13 through 15. Listen now for God's word through the teachings of Jesus. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how can its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything, but is thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A city built on a hill cannot be hid. No one, after lighting a lamp, puts it under the bushel basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all in the house. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Our second reading drops us right into a critical moment in the story of Esther. A Jewish orphan cared for by her cousin Mordecai, Esther is taken into custody as a consort in the Persian king's harem. Queen Vashti had been deposed for refusing to entertain the king and his friends in what was, at best, a salacious and coercive beauty parade. As a result, Esther quickly becomes queen after currying the king's favor. Now Esther finds herself in a precarious position when her cousin uncovers the king's support for a plot to destroy the entire Jewish people. Hear what the Spirit is saying to the church in selected verses from Esther 4, 1 through 17. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, he tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went through the city, wailing with a loud and bitter cry. In every province, wherever the king's command and his decree came, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting and weeping and lamenting, and most of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's maids and her eunuchs came and told her, the queen was deeply distressed. She sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther called for Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs who had been appointed to attend to her, and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what was happening and why. Mordecai gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for the Jews' destruction, that he might show it to Esther, explain it to her, and charge her to go to the king and make supplication to him and entreat him for her people. Esther spoke to Hathak and gave him a message for Mordecai, saying, All the king's servants and all the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law. All alike are to be put to death. Only if the king holds out the golden scepter to someone, may that person live. I myself have not been called to come into the king for thirty days. Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silence at such a time as this, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another quarter, but you and your father's family will perish. Who knows? Perhaps you have come to royal dignity for just such a time as this. 
Then Esther said in reply to Mordecai, Go and gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast in my behalf, and neither eat nor drink for three days, night or day. I and my maids will also fast as you do. After that I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. This is the word of the Lord. Faced with a difficult decision whether to risk death and take a life-giving stand for her people, Esther summons the courage to speak up and to out herself as a Jew. Her intervention saves the day, and in contrast to the fasting in today's reading, the story concludes with celebratory feasting. This ending is what some Jewish people still commemorate today with the festival of Purim. Esther is a heroine with a complex come-up story that we don't often find in church. It's not in the revised lectionary. As one of two biblical books that doesn't mention God at all, Esther almost didn't make the Jewish or Christian canons. The other book, appropriately enough for Valentine's Week, is Song of Songs. In recent years, some feminist scholars have also suggested that Esther is an anti-hero, and that the better role model is the deposed Queen Vashti, who said no to the king's order to entertain his companions at the outset of the Book of Esther. And I have to admit, there's a certain sense of empowerment, especially in the age of Me Too, and imagining Vashti telling this political leader something like, sit all the way down, I am not captive flesh, and I won't be put on display for your pleasure. But, you know, I think a central question should be, why did a system that allowed men to dominate and dehumanize women in this way exist at all? Instead of, did Esther say yes? Despite her vulnerability, Esther ultimately says yes to the call to use what power she has in this broken system, an audience with the king, for the deliverance of her people a group that found itself on the edge of assimilation and annihilation in multiple empires over time. And that kind of courage is no less than heroic. Her story reminds Christian author Rachel Held Evans of the faithful courage of Brie Newsom. Brie Newsom rose to prominence when she defied the law in 2015 by climbing the flagpole outside the South Carolina State Capitol to take down the Confederate flag during the uproar after the fatal shooting of the Emanuel AME Church 9 by white supremacist Dylan Roof. Decrying the massacre that had occurred just days before, Newsom faced the threat that police officers might electrify the pole as she scaled to the top to take a symbolic stand. For many of us, These women's examples of courage can be both inspiring and disempowering because, unlike them, we are not heroes. Rarely, if ever, will we face such high stakes at such pivotal moments. In Esther's case, her intervention is immediately effective. By approaching the king, she saves the lives of many. Then again, we also know all too well that the evils of anti-Semitism and white supremacy can be more subtle and so resilient. 
It can be disheartening to think that not only are we not heroes, but that these problems are also so pervasive that it's hard to know even where to begin if we hope to make any difference at all. It was hope that led to my unheroic moment. A group from the Divinity School and the Nashville Grassroots Organizing Community lay on the searing pavement in the midday sun on a bridge as part of a Black Lives Matter protest. Since the shootings of Trayvon Martin and Michael Brown, the national news had read like a mass obituary of brown and black men, often omitting equally heartbreaking stories of violence against women of color. And we had enacted this protest as a peaceful resistance to racism and gun violence. I was there because I had been invited or called in to the work of advocating for collective flourishing, as organizers describe it. But I also confess to you that I felt out of place, like an imposter. I knew I wasn't as hardcore as Esther or Bree Newsom when the sound of sirens approached and my initial thoughts were, where is that remember your rights card that they gave us? I have a paper due tomorrow. And finally, what will my mother think? Handcuffs are not a good look on someone pursuing ministry. I obviously needed a lot of spiritual growth. I still do, and I always will. But I was taking the next imperfect step on a journey. As I've shared with some in our 8 o'clock service before, my peers lit the path to intentionally resisting racism as much as did their predecessors, a host of legendary activists, scholars, and people of faith, including the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., Ida B. Wells, and Howard Thurman. They were salt and light, as Jesus charged his followers to be in today's gospel text from the Sermon on the Mount. They challenged me to see my silence in the classroom, in the community, and in the church, which was motivated by fear of saying the wrong thing, as self-interested, even if it was well-intentioned. They taught me to unlearn messages that being colorblind or treating all people the same are enough to challenge the status quo. They encouraged me to take a long, hard look at my complicity with unjust systems simply by virtue of my position within the social webs that both shape my identity and sustain inequity. In fact, identity is a central theme in Esther's story and in all of ours, too. As a diasporic Jew, a woman, and the subject of the king, Esther is vulnerable in the power structure of her time. Yet, as the queen, she also has proximity to power that gives her some agency, and she uses it for the common good. From birth, we have all been cast in webs of relationships and identity constructs that form a huge social system that runs on the renewable energy of the fear of the other. These are often reinforced by patterns of domination and subjugation. And yet God offers us better. We're also born of God and entangled in God's deep love for us, which makes us able to love one another. So being tangled up in the death-dealing ways of systemic sin is part of our existence, to be sure. 
but we also have a biblical image of life-giving entanglement that we can work with. Throughout our learning how to love by listening to others, seeking forgiveness when needed, and trying to do better, the Holy Spirit empowers us to work with God and others to reshape social and political arrangements so they promote flourishing for all. We are invited as Jesus' disciples to engage in a kind of implicated resistance to go outside of ourselves to practice intertwined love for God and neighbor in the spirit of Christ who emptied himself, who humbled himself. We are not able to resist the evils of our time perfectly, as maybe Esther wasn't either. But we are called to resist them persistently as we journey together with God toward the unfixed finish line of realizing the kingdom or the kingdom of God. Self-proclaimed Christian mommy blogger, philanthropist, and social activist Glennon Doyle said something similar in a recent episode of the podcast On Being, which Reverend Sandiford brought to mind in our staff worship recently. The host, Krista Tippett, interviewed Doyle along with her wife, retired U.S. soccer star Abby Wambach. The theme was courage. In response to popular language about compassion fatigue, in our human tendency to feel powerless and paralyzed when we're faced with the major problems of our time, Doyle said, we cannot let the fact that we can't do everything keep us from doing something. You do that little thing, and then you feel more awake and alive and connected. Tippett similarly brought up our collective need for a type of courage that our public life doesn't foster at this time the ability to hold hard questions and walk with them. So I wonder how our identities as people of faith position us to step into that void and walk. Of all the things that you do well and are continuing to teach me as a congregation, the one that speaks to my heart in this moment is the art of pilgrimage which is the act of making an intentional inward and outward spiritual journey. I learned some about how to do this in community from several of you on the Camino de Santiago last fall. And I hope now that pilgrimage can be a metaphor for how we respond together to resilient evils such as xenophobia in all of its forms, with the tenacious courage that we need in just such a time as this. When I worked with a predominantly white church in Nashville, together we began to increase our focus on intentional anti-racism. This work surfaced our collective feelings of inadequacy and shame. Disillusionment about society, past, present, and future stirred doubts that we would ever get there to some promised land of just relations and equity. Still, We kept walking together, guided by faith, counsel from people on the front lines of social movements, and, in true Reformed fashion, some good books. One of our proverbial walking partners was Ta-Nehisi Coates, author of Between the World and Me. Others were Michelle Alexander, who wrote The New Jim Crow, Mass Incarceration in the Age of Colorblindness, and Debbie Irving, who wrote Waking Up White, and finding myself in the story of race. 
I learned that the congregation is now walking with Robin D'Angelo's white fragility, why it's so hard for white people to talk about racism. And so the journey continues along the path to continual awakening or staying woke. So as we take up our call to be salt and light, and as we learn to hold hard questions and walk with them, I'm reminded of a lesson that interfaith educator Margaret Ernst shared during a session that we co-facilitated. She said, it's about moving forward, one step at a time. Think of it as one foot being your inner work and the other being your outer work. Inner, outer, awareness, action, over and over for a lifetime. Margaret's words are still teaching me to value persistence over perfection. Friends, the journey to do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with God is not about one single moment, one march for justice, one commemorative month per year. It's about a continual movement to make God's life-giving purposes for the world known. It's not about one perfect act of resistance or one protest, but about persistence and about pilgrimage toward making the kingdom of God that promised realm of justice, love, and peace, a final reality for all. So let's take the next imperfect, courageous step together. Please rise in body or spirit as we affirm our faith using the words in our bulletin from the Sarasota Statement. We, as people of faith... Trust that God's transforming word continuously meets us anew, and so we seek silence for reflecting, discerning, and imagining the kingdom of God. We grieve the ways our silence indulges cowardice, justifies irresponsibility, and promotes fear in the face of injustice. Such silence leaves room for falsehood and complacency to choke out truth and compassion. As those being made new, we partner with Christ in bringing the kingdom to earth as it is in heaven. We decry any attempt to co-opt the gospel for purposes of excluding those whom Jesus sought, welcomed, and made his own. We trust that God is always at work in our world and in our lives, giving us joy and calling us to be faithful to Jesus' vision of the kingdom. Let us continue on in a spirit of prayer. Let us pray. God of hope for the heartbroken, once again we come to you after gun violence. Receive into your loving care the souls of those who were killed in Aurora. Cradle the wounded, console the loved ones of those who were injured or killed. All of this makes us inexpressibly sad. But we know, God, that the sadness we feel is your sadness. It is the same sadness your son expressed when he wept over the death of his friend Lazarus. Remembering this 38th mass shooting in America this year alone, we are tired, too. 
Tired of the unwillingness of some to see this as an important issue. Tired of some in power who work to prevent any real change and tired of those who say that gun violence can't be reduced. But we know that the tiredness we feel is your tiredness. It's the same tiredness that Jesus felt after his own struggles against injustice that led him to fall asleep on the boat with his disciples. We are angry, God. Angry at the feelings of powerlessness to prevent this. Angry at selfish financial interests who block change. Angry that these shootings happen at all. Angry at a mental health system that fails to protect people in pain and distress from having weapons so freely at their disposal. But we know that this anger is your anger. It's the same anger Jesus felt when he overturned the tables in the temple, angry that anyone would be taken advantage of in any way. Help us to see in these feelings the way that you move us to act. Help us to see in these emotions your own desire for change. Help us to see in these reactions you're pushing us to do something, to have courage. Because we know this is the way you move people to action. And we know that you desire action for Jesus did not stand by while people were being hurt. He plunged into their lives. Lord, we witness, your, we witness such division in our own country. Your will be done, your desire for your people through this world and our nation to compel us onward when times are especially bleak, not just at our border, but in Syria, in Yemen, in India, and Israel. Such overwhelming need. Help us not to look away from all that need, to be jaded or unfeeling or uncaring, but to keep our hands and our ears and our hearts open that your way would be the world's way. The kingdom of God breaking into these places of hardship and tragedy. However we may be useful to you, make it be so. Make us as a refuge in the dust, hope in the darkness, a light in the world, a balm in Gilead. Your light, our light. Be this day with the sick, the dying, the worn, the frayed, the fearful, all who suffer. Send your mercy pouring forth to each tender heart that is broken today, each person who feels mangled by grief, everyone who feels wounded by life and mistreated by the world around them, hopeless and hard up to find anyone who will care. Bless our own broken and grieving hearts and for the burdens we manage to carry that no one notices or that we keep hidden deep inside. For the blessings of this life, for miracles of grace, for birth, for air and water, for food and song and prayer, for laughter and love and peace, for beauty and art and music and stirring words, for the presence of compassion that we do see, for those moments and memories that keep us from despair, for the church that tries hard, sometimes failing but always hopeful, for the friends who bless us and the ones who challenge us, for the thoughts that perplex us and the passions that give our lives true meaning for all of this, we thank you. And with one voice, we offer this prayer to you. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors and lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil 
For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Thanks for worshiping with us. For more information, visit us on the web at www.firstpresbyterian.org or send an email to info at firstpresbyterian.org. See you next week for another sermon from First Press.